0: and wealth teachers say, the word faith teachers. They say if we just had enough faith, everything would be all right. Both of those are false responses to trouble and pain in the Christian life. On the other hand, many well-meaning Christians are impatient with other Christians who are under long-suffering. They often say, you know, you just really need to let go of this and trust God more. That's always good advice, isn't it? It, 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 That's always good advice. That's always correct advice. But sometimes that correct advice, you just need to close your mouth and wait. Even though it's correct advice. Because it, it, it doesn't show compassion and mercy on those who are struggling and suffering, does it? Trusting God is never, ever a bad idea, but it's also important for us to be patient with each other as we work through the difficulties of our lives. By the way, that's uh, one of the good lessons that I think we do learn from this psalm. Although this psalm is somewhat depressing, this psalm doesn't have hope or resolution to it. There are a number of really good things that we can learn from this psalm, and we need to learn them. And that's one of them, patience with brothers and sisters who know they need to be trusting and resting in God, but just are struggling. They know that that's where they're supposed to be, but they're having a hard time getting there because of the depth of their circumstances. And and, and how many of you have been there? How many of you have been to a place in your life where you feel like just getting your head above water is a struggle? I've been there. And, And I know a number of people that are there. Sometimes when we face troubles, we don't get the counsel, it's all an illusion. Or if you, tr- if you just trusted God, everything would be all right. Or, oh, you need to put this behind you and get on with life. Sometimes we get other counsel. Sometimes we get counsel from friends that say something like, you know, the believer never ever faces unanswered prayer, unrelieved suffering. The believer just never is there in the Christian life. And, and again, I think this psalm is waiting for us in that kind of circumstance to help us know how we ought to respond. Still, some people come to the passages like this and say, ah, this teaches us that there are no answers. And so the answer is to realize that there are no answers. Well, I think that's not the message of this psalm either because even in this psalm that ends with such bleakness and darkness, there is, in fact, some answers. There's not all the answers. There's not all the answers that the Bible gives us, but there are some very important answers So let's read the passage this morning and let's dive in and search God's inspired answers to some of life's difficult circumstance. So if you have your Bibles open, if you don't have your Bibles, you'll find it on the screen in front of you. A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah to the choir master, according to the Mahalath Leonath, a mascal of Haman the Ezraite. Right off the bat, we find out who wrote the psalm. Haman, the Ezraite, who was one of the sons of Korah. You know, what, you know what the sons of Korah did? They were the worship leaders in the temple. Now, uh, history, um, there have been some people that have speculated why, why Haman, the Ezraite, was in the condition that he was. And some have speculated, I'm going to throw this out here. I don't know if there's any truth to it, but some people have done some research, and they have believed that Haman, who was part of the choir, one of the choir leaders, one of the worship leaders, had a skin disease, developed a skin disease later in life. And you know, according to the laws of the Old Testament, if you have a skin disease, you can't go in to worship. And so he was kept from going in to the temple to worship because of that skin disease. Again, I don't know the circumstance or situation. A lot of times, those of us who are in the struggle or the difficulties We don't even understand sometimes the circumstance, do we? We can't put our finger on what is causing us to struggle. But we just know we're feeling low. O Lord God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? and my friend to shun my companions have become darkness whoa i just i just want to go whoa i was looking online this past week to see if there were any contemporary songs that have as their background psalm 88 i did find a couple there's a group out there that takes the psalms and just puts music to them. But you know what? The song that they put together reflected nothing of the depth of sorrow that this guy felt. It was all happy, happy, joy, joy. Using this psalmist's words. And I think the people that wrote that song were out of touch with reality. But I found no other music, not even old hymns, that had Psalm 88 as the foundation, as the reason that the author wrote these hymns. What do you sing when you're in a valley? What, what do you sing when you feel like life's, life's struggles are, have overcome you? I think Psalm 88 is there to express some of the great truths of the Christian life for us. And I want to look at those together with you. And I want you to see there's really four parts in this psalm. And we could outline it in various ways, but verses 1 and 2 show us an unanswered prayer. The psalmist is praying and he doesn't feel like he's getting the answers. Then in verses 3 through 9, the psalm affirms that God is, seems to be behind the psalmist's troubles. He, he's pointing the finger at God and saying, you're the reason I'm where I'm at. And then verses 10 through 12, the psalmist raises an argument with God. And I think it's an important argument with God that teaches us something about the finality of death as well as the hope of the resurrection. And then finally in verses 13 through 18, we see that this prayer is still unanswered and that in the end, in and of itself, has a message for us. So let me walk through the psalm in each of these and then point out a couple applications at the end that I think we can find some hope from this morning. First two verses, O Lord God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you, incline your ear to my cry. In other words, the psalmist is saying, I've been pleading for your help, but it's like you haven't heard me. The psalmist has lifted up a petition, a prayer, a request for help, but that petition has not gone past the ceiling. And this is the first point in your map. Sometimes even strong believers feel as if their cries for help have gone unheard. Sometimes even strong believers feel as if their cries for help have gone unheard. And that means that in those circumstances, we need to be careful not to be like Job's friends. And tell Job that if Job had just not sinned, or if he would just get around to repenting, or if he would just trust God more, then everything would be okay. And we do that, don't we? And you know why we do that? Because we, we don't really want to deal with the pain of other people. We don't want to enter in with them. And so we give the glib responses that some Christian communities have become, become, be, become known for. And I don't think that we can be like that as a true community of believers. We can't give the glib answers. We have to be willing to enter into people's pain. And no, it's not fun. But we have to be able to do that. We have to get to the point of recognizing that we need each other in this this life. In these struggles. In these difficulties. You know, there are seasons when strong believers feel as if their prayers have not been heard. And thankfully, this psalm reminds us of that. If that weren't the case, there really would be a cause for despair, wouldn't there? If you were going through a season where a prayer had not been heard and you thought that the Bible teaches that true believers never go through those seasons, then what are you going to think about yourself? You're going to think somehow that maybe you're unspiritual or maybe you didn't use the right words when you prayed. Ultimately, there is always a bigger picture in this dynamic, isn't there? I think we also know that when we're in the midst of that battle of prayer and we're praying for the conversion of a loved one for years. I, I, I remember hearing my grandmother tell stories that for years she prayed for her children to come to Christ. For years and years and years and years. And she never let up. Or that um, a deep, deep burden to bear when that answer has not been given that our heart so longs for. I know Elizabeth and I have friends, couples that have tried to have children for years and years and years and have struggled and have gone to the clinics and have tried every trick in the the world to have children, and they can't. And we keep praying for them, though. We keep persevering. When the word of mercy and relief and grace and miracle has not occurred, it's difficult, isn't it? It's a difficult place to be, and that's where the psalmist is. Feeling as if his prayer has not been heard. And again, I think that teaches us, as other Christians who are not going through the struggle, that we need to be sensitive and supportive to our brothers and sisters when they're in that circumstance. The second part of the verse is you see in verses 3 through 9, For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I will call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. And again, I think the psalmist is basically saying, Lord God, I have got one foot in the grave and you're pushing me in. You're pushing the rest of me in. How many of you are familiar with Rabbi Harold Kushner? Rabbi Harold Kushner wrote a book. And for many, many years, it was was received in the Christian community why bad things happen to good people. I don't recommend that you get it because it's not biblical. (laughs) But if Rabbi Kushner were with the psalmist, he would probably look at the psalmist and say, look, sometimes bad things happen to good people. You're a good person. God has nothing to do with this. He'd love to help you out, but he can't. Because he's not in control of everything. And if you can't just come to terms with the realization that God's not in control of everything and he's not in control of your circumstances, you'll get some relief. That's what he would say. God is not in control. And once you come to that once you come to that conclusion, then you'll get some relief. There is no relief in that. The psalmist knows God is in control. The psalmist knows that God is sovereign. I find it interesting that when you look through the book of Job, that Job never entertained the thought that God was not in control of his life. Job struggled, didn't he? Job questioned God and he challenged God, but he never questioned that God was out of control. Never. Never. In fact, I think the whole book of Job, the whole wrestling of the book of Job is is precisely because Job knows that God is in control and he wants to know, Lord, what in the world are you doing? I have asked that question a number of times. What are you doing? Where are you? Nowhere does Job get comfort from the thought, oh, I I didn't realize that you're not in control, God. God. The psalmist knows that too. He never tries to find comfort from saying, oh, I understand now God is not in control. This isn't his fault. He'd like to help me out if he could. See, no, over and over and over again, the psalmist acknowledges that God's in charge. And see, I I find no comfort in in the worldly philosophy that fate is weaving its its thread through my life. There's no comfort in that. What, what gives me great comfort, while I don't necessarily understand it, is that a sovereign, loving, caring God is in control of the circumstances of my life. That gives me comfort, even though I can't understand. And I think Pastor Mike even said this last Sunday in his sermon. We have got to come to the place where we don't have to understand. We have to We have to believe that God is in control and that he has a bigger picture and plan for this. I see another important truth in this section of the psalm, and this is your second point in your map. In the midst of struggle, we need to hang on to the truth that God is in control. Again, as we pull back and look at the bigger picture, I think we also need to see that God is patient with us even when we question him isn't it the kindness and mercy of God for the sake of Christ that he is so patient with us? I think it is. And that ought to teach us not only personal patience and grace grace with ourselves, but patience and grace with Christians that are going through these difficult times as well. If you read some some of the Old Testament prophets, some of them don't hold back from telling God how they feel, do they? In fact, Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. If if Jeremiah were here, and dare I say this, about one of God's anointed, I would say, hey, stop complaining, guy. Stop your whining. But he was known as the weeping prophet. God's shoulders are big enough for your, your cares and concerns. Share them with him. Don't be afraid to share what's on your heart. His shoulders are big enough. He can take it. If the Lord can bear it, we ought to be able to bear it too, for each other. In fact, doesn't the scripture call us to bear one another's burdens? Here's the problem with bearing one another's burdens. The Bible calls us to bear one another's burdens. The other challenge is, are you willing to share your burdens with others? It has to go both ways, friends. You can't do this by yourself. You can't do this life by yourself. You can't do the Christian life by yourself. And you can't do a struggling Christian life by yourself. You've got to be willing to share. You've got to be willing to open up your heart. You've got to be willing to get rid of this perspective. Christian guys don't cry. Or Christian women, they have it all together, so I can't, I can't give this perspective that I'm weak and I'm struggling. And we do that, don't we? I've gotten it all together. The next section, verses 10 through 12. Do you work wonders from the dead for the dead? <laughs> Do you hear an answer already? If you remember the gospel, you should hear an answer already. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do do the depart rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave and your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? And I think the psalmist has come up with a pretty clever argument though he thinks. Here's his argument, Lord, you really need to hear my prayer. Here's the argument, I want to praise you, God, but I can't do that if I'm six feet under. I can't praise you from the grave. I can't witness to your wonders. I can't tell people about your righteousness. I can't tell about your justice, your faithfulness, your mercy, if I'm dead. So please hear me, answer my prayer. And you know, I think there's a lot to learn from the psalmist's statements here. For one thing, the psalmist has has not forgotten that his purpose in life is what? To glorify God. That's still his purpose in life. Struggles and difficulties don't change our purpose in life. Our purpose is still to glorify God. In the midst of that. And and, and one of my favorite lines in the book of Job is, though he slay me, yet I will still praise him. I will still praise him. Lord, he says, will you perform wonders from the dead? And do you hear God? As a matter of fact, yes, I will. Will you depart spirits? Will departed spirits rise and praise you? And God says, as a matter of fact, your Old Testament believer, they will. Will your loving kindness be declared in the grave? Yes, it will, my son. My son's grave. All pain and suffering has as its backdrop the death and resurrection of Jesus. All our pain and suffering really gains perspective when we see that God's son came and took on our nature And bore all our infirmities. He is always, Jesus is always the answer to pain and suffering. He is always, none of us will experience the kind of separation that Jesus felt from his Father. None of us. None of us will experience the full weight of the Father's wrath for the sin of the world upon our shoulders. None of us. Jesus is the answer to pain and suffering. He bore it. He absorbed it for us. And that's what the psalmist couldn't see. He couldn't see that. But he still trusted in God. The very finality with which the psalmist views death, I think, serves as a highlight for the Christian hope of Resurrection. There is hope of resurrection. And, and other religious systems don't have a hope of resurrection. Even, even in some of the Eastern religions where reincarnation is the goal, that's not resurrection. Because resurrection assumes that we're moving from a, a bad state to a better state. See, in reincarnation, there's no, it's not. It's just that same state of futility. Coming back in a different form to experience futility again. But see, what is resurrection? What is resurrection the promise of? Resurrection is the promise that we're going to have new bodies. Resurrection is the promise that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth where we will not struggle with difficulties, where we won't struggle with depression and disease and sickness and death. It'll be gone. That's the hope of glory. That's the hope of our glory in Christ. I think that's important for us to remember because ultimately our hope is not simply that when we die, our souls immediately go to be with the Lord, although they do. But our hope is that one day our bodies will be raised from the dead, body and soul, and we will live and praise and worship God for his righteousness and faithfulness and justice and mercy forever. That's our hope. I think the very lack of that full understanding of that truth by this Old Testament believer highlights that truth for us. In the latter part, the last part of these verses, verses 13 through 18, but I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. The psalmist cries out, I am burdened. I'm burdened by you, O God, but I'm still waiting for your help. I, I I think we're conditioned sometimes by... 30-minute and 60-minute sitcoms, aren't we? We're conditioned by the fact that when we turn on the television and we have a half-an-hour TV show or a 60-minute TV show, that that all the conflict is resolved by the end of that show. And we think, well, my life ought to have Happily Ever After, too. Why why, why doesn't my life have Happily Ever After? Is there something wrong with me? And I... (laughs) I think that that is one of the things that this psalm teaches us, that life's problems don't get wrapped up in 30 to 60 minutes. That happily ever after is not always the final word, this side of heaven. It's not. We learn that, and this is the next point in your map, there is unrelieved suffering in the believer's life. We, we live in the already, not yet. We already have everything we need in Jesus Christ. But we're not yet perfected. We are unfinished this side of heaven. And that's hard to, that's hard to get a hold of. That's hard to wrap your arms around and your brain, your brain around. But there is unrelieved suffering in the believer's life. But this psalm also teaches us that the believer never ever comes to terms of peace with the pain and suffering of the fallen world. The believer always knows this is not how it's supposed to be. This is not how God intended it to be. And I think all of us who who name the name of Christ, we have to trace Misery always paints a line back to sin, and until sin is dealt with, then misery will never be eradicated. Will it? Now, what are the points of hope and application in this psalm? There are some, and there are some good ones. I want to mention three. The first and most important point of hope in this psalm is found in the very first verse. What does the psalmist call God? God. God of my salvation. And that's that's really the first point of hope. God is our only help and hope. And that is the one thing that is never taken away from any believer. No matter what else is taken away from the believer, that help and hope can never be taken away. And that's so important for us to remember. Everything can be lost in this world, but not that. Romans 8, 38 through 39 say, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Nothing. Can you say that to yourself? Nothing is going to separate me. And these aren't, these aren't the words of a, of, a, of a raving fool standing in front of you right now. These are are the word of God that is telling you nothing will separate you from him and his love. Nothing. Secondly, notice that even in that crazy argument in verses 10 through 11 about how the Lord needed to hear him because he couldn't praise him from the grave, even in that argument, what do we see? I think we see the continuing desire of this psalmist to praise God. And that's the second point in our application. We must maintain a continual desire to praise God. Have you ever met someone who the troubles of life have simply made bitter? I have. The troubles of life have made them bitter. They've become bitter, they've become cynical, they, they have no hope. Well, despite what he's been through... Haman the Ezraite is not there. He still wants to praise God, and that is a great blessing. Even if he's having a hard time doing it, he wants to get there. Well, how do we revive a spirit of praise in the midst of struggle? How do you and I, in the midst of our difficulties, how do we revive that spirit of praise in the midst of struggle? Well, here's a couple verses that I want you verses that I want you to ponder. Psalm 31, verse 4. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Psalm 47, verse 1, O clap your hands, all ye people, shout unto God with the voice of triumph. Psalm 48, 1a, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Psalm 71, 8, Let my mouth be filled with thy praise and with thy honor all day long. There are some things that we have to consider with our mind but but the things that we need to consider with our mind and we're constantly told in the scriptures to consider things with our mind but one of the things we need to consider is where we're going for the truth that we're trying to consider we can't go to the world to find truth we have to go to the scriptures and that's what it, it, start reading the psalms That's why there's psalm after psalm after psalm after psalm after psalm. And if you look at some of the difficult circumstances that David was in when he wrote some of these psalms, those have to be places that we need to go when we feel like we're under distress. We have to dwell in the Word of God. And thirdly, I think we need to notice that even though there's no answer to this prayer in verses 13 through 18, The psalmist is still praying. And what's the message for us? Very simple. Don't stop praying. Don't stop going to God. Jeremiah 33, verses 2 through 3 say, Thus says the Lord who made the earth, the Lord who formed it to establish it. The Lord is his name. Call to me and I will answer to you. In fact, I learned this as a a youth, that God's phone number is Jeremiah 33. What does he say? Call to me. And I will answer you and will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. Call to me. And secondly, Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. We can go to Jesus. He understands what we're going through. He has felt the darkness of loneliness. He has felt the darkness of betrayal. He has felt the darkness of not having the answers go according to what he wished. In fact, didn't he in the garden say, Lord, please may this cup pass from me. But what did he resolve? Not my will, though. My will is that it pass away. I don't want to go to the cross, Father. But your will be done, not mine. I think those are three great encouragements in this otherwise very, very dark psalm. And sometimes life hurts, doesn't it? It does. Life hurts. When it does, we need to do as the psalmist did in this passage. We need to keep on praying and keep on persevering and keep on praising. It may not always change the situation but there can be little doubt that it will change us as we bear under the circumstance. It will change us. You know, the word, one of the fruits of the Spirit is long-suffering. And what's, what's long-suffering mean? A long, long patience under difficult circumstances. And, and that's what God wants to build in all of us as we work through this life and prepare for the next. C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite authors, and I don't have an opportunity to read him enough. And he said this quote, and I, I put it in your maps, on the very bottom of the map. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Do you hear God shouting in your pain? Do you hear God shouting at you and calling you to himself, even in the midst of struggle? I hope that you do.